Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. As you read through scripture, God speaks through the content, but he doesn't only speak through the content. God also speaks in the arrangement of the scripture. So there's, there's principles, there's stories, there's narrative, there's God speaking through the voice of the prophets, but there's also the, the way that stories are arranged to drive home a point and teach something very specific. And I'm saying this because this is one of those moments that's abundantly clear to us. As we come to the end of 1 Samuel 12, verse 25 says to us, this is last week, 1 Samuel 12, 25 said, if you still do wickedly, this is Samuel talking to Israel. He says, if you walk in the ways of the Lord, you're gonna be blessed. But if you act wickedly, if you walk in disobedience, you will be swept away, both you and your king. That's the last verse of chapter 12. And a lot of times, chapters and verses are very helpful for us, but they have a way sometimes of breaking up the story. And we kind of stop there and we forget that Samuel said that as we go into chapter 13. The last thing that Samuel said when they were standing at Gilgal is, here's your final warning. If you walk in disobedience, you will be swept away, both you and your king. And then we get into 1 Samuel 13 and it's a story of the king being disobedient and he swept away. The content preaches, but also the arrangement preaches. And the arrangement is preaching to us that God's word always comes to pass. If God says that he's going to do a thing, he absolutely will do that thing. And this is the tragic tale as we go into Saul. He was at Gilgal, he heard Samuel give the warning, you walk in disobedience, you're gonna be swept away. When one ear, it went in one ear and out the other. And then we get into 1 Samuel 13. So let's go through this tragic tale today. We're gonna to start in verse uh, one and we'll read through seven. I'm gonna pause, we'll reflect a little bit, give you some bearings because in today's chapters, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot of locations and people. Um, there's a lot of military strategies. And so it's easy to get lost in all the details, but I don't want you to forget that the details are just the arrangement of God's word reminding us that God is working in the details, okay? God is at work in the middle of war and famine and politics and economy and all these things are at play and we see God working through all of them. So let's get, let's get into it. First Samuel 13 verse one. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king and when he had reigned for two years, over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now let me pause right there. Because that first verse might read differently in your uh, version that you're reading. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, and when presented with this verse from the Hebrew and you're translating into English, there are a couple issues. Because here's how it reads in Hebrew. When Saul was one year old, he became king. <laughs> 
If you're reading the King James, that's what it says. And he reigned for two years over Israel. There are, uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, um, were discovered, some of the Greek manuscripts, some of the older Septuagints, tell us Saul's age, that he began to reign as 30 years old. So you've got a Hebrew translation that seems to say that Saul became king at one years old. Uh, and then you've got a Greek translation that actually is older than the, the oldest Hebrew translation we have that has Saul's date. So the analysis probably was that in translation or maybe over time, somebody forgot to add in some numbers here. And so the translators uh, for the ESV, they said, okay, we're gonna say Saul lived for one year and then became king. He wasn't one years old when he became king, but one year probably from the time that he was anointed to the, everything that happened in the previous chapter. And then for a period of two years, then we're gonna get into what he's doing um, in, in regard to stationing men over at Michmash and over at Gibeah. But other translations, some that you might have, will say that Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 42. The New Living Translation says that. The reason why they say that is because if you go over into uh, the New Testament, Paul was teaching, he references that uh, Saul reigned for 40 years. And as you go through Samuel and you go through Kings, there is a habit of the writers writing what, how old the king was when he took his throne and how long he reigned. And so that's why those translators use that. Um, uh, wording. So I say all that to say uh, that there are some good translations out there and there's some bad translations out there. Uh, but that is the reason why when you're reading through it, sometimes you're like, well, that's not what mine says. Well, that's the reason why, because a group of uh, translators come together and they're assigned uh, a way to do the translation. Some translations are, let's just do it word for word. And we're not going to worry about whether it's easy to read or not. And some translators come in and they make the decision, okay, our job is to keep the heart of what they're saying, but arrange it in an English way of, of understanding. So when someone's reading it, it has the heart of what it's saying, but it actually is readable and it makes sense. So all of that, that was free. I'm only in charge for it. First Samuel 1. Now let's get to First Samuel 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with him, were with Saul and Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people were sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah. Okay, that's a big jump. All of a sudden from two to three, we've got troop placement, and then Jonathan, he's getting, he's getting a wild hair and he just wants to go take out some Philistines. Well, there's a lot of stuff happening in the middle of those two verses. We'll get to it in a minute. But what you need to know is that right after the ceremony at Gilgal from chapter 12 that we just talked about last week, when Samuel was calling everyone to repentance and they're having this renewal ceremony, right after that, Saul tells everyone, all right, go home. But I'm gonna have a standing army. I'm gonna put 2,000 guys over in this city. I'm gonna put 1,000 guys over in this city, but all the rest of you guys can go home. Well, while those guys in the, the, with Jonathan were hanging out in Gibeah, they decided, you know what? I think I'm gonna start a war. You know, we just came off of this Ammonite thing. We're, we're we could, like, we had a lot of victory. How about we just keep, keep this thing rolling? And Jonathan takes his men and he goes just up the road and he takes out a garrison of the Philistines. Verse three, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it and saw, blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. 
and also to Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fjords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. All right, now, I told you lots of places, lots of people, confusing things if you're not familiar with the land of Israel. I, I got you, don't worry about it. I got a map. So we're gonna start off the map. Middle East, just like we have been. Draw a little uh, rectangle around where we're zooming in. This is the land we're talking about. Now, last week, if you remember from uh, what we were discussing the previous week, Gibeah, that is uh, Saul's hometown. And currently, that's kind of where the palace is located. It's not a formal palace, but that's where uh, the king is living at the time. So after Gilgal, so Gilgal's over here on the right, on the uh, kind of the west coast of the Jordan River, that's that blue line running up from the Dead Sea. Uh, after the ceremony last week, Saul tells everyone, okay, you can go home, but I'm gonna put 2,000 men up at Michmash, and I'm gonna put 1,000 men with my son, Jonathan, over in my hometown, Gibeah. Well, Jonathan is over in Gibeah, and he knows that just north, up in Geba, there's this garrison of the Philistines, and Jonathan is hanging out with his boys, and he's like, man, I, we just beat the Ammonites, like, why don't we beat some Philistines too? So he takes a group north, up to Geba, and wipes out a garrison of Philistines and essentially starts a war. And all Israel is like, oh, we're fighting again? Okay. So word spreads out through all of the land and everyone gets excited. Oh, we just, we beat the Ammonites. I guess it's time to beat the Philistines. So a message goes out from Saul to the rest of the land. Hey, I know you guys just, we were just at Gilgal and I told you to go home, but I need you to come back again. So he calls all of Israel back to Gilgal, so they're all assembling at Gilgal. And all, while all of Israel is assembling at Gilgal, the Philistines, who primarily are living over in this town called Gath, that's the red box with the white letters over on the left side, that's the Philistine city, Gath. They're like, well, we're not gonna let this stand. So they gather all of their troops and they gather up at Michmash. So the 2,000 that were at Michmash, they go over to Gilgal. The guys in Gibeah go over to Gilgal. All of Israel goes down to Gilgal and they start rallying. All right, we need a battle plan. We're gonna wait for Samuel to come up. He's gonna offer a sacrifice. He's gonna tell us what the Lord wants us to do. Maybe it's gonna be something crazy like, let's just go out, let's put our swords down, let's just go out and worship. And he's gonna, he's gonna open up the earth and he's gonna swallow everybody. We don't know what the Lord's gonna do but we're all gonna gather, and we're gonna ask the Lord what to do, and then we're gonna go to battle. Well, while they're doing this, the Philistines gather in Michmash, and the way the, the, the geography lays that Michmash is kind of higher than Gilgal, Gilgal's down in the valley. As all of the Philistines from Gath starts gathering in Michmash, they're up on the mountains, and they can see, the Israelites can see up in the mountains, oh no, this isn't good. All the Philistines, now they've gathered for war. So now it's not just Israel, now it's all the Philistines, and it looks like literally every Philistine in the whole country. There's like 30,000 chariots everywhere you look. They look like the sand of the seashore. These guys are everywhere. And as they start seeing this, they start panicking. 
And all of a sudden, the guys that gathered at Gilgal are looking at Saul, and they're like, hey, uh, I got a thing I got to do. And so they start retreating. In the middle of the night, somebody else disappears. The next day, somebody else disappears. And then pretty soon, most of the army has retreated back over the Jordan River, up into Gad, into Gilead, up into the hill country to hide. And Saul is left with just 600 men. And Saul's panicking. Because now he's asking himself, what are we going to do? And the pressure starts mounting on Saul. Hey, Saul, what kind of king are you? You can't even hold your guys together. You can't even keep them for seven days while you're waiting on Samuel to show up. You don't look like a... And all of this insecurity inside of Saul starts, starts stirring. So he starts panicking. Let's see what he does next. Go to verse 8. So Saul waited seven days, which was the appointed time by Samuel, back from 1 Samuel 10, 8. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering in front of Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering, and the offering, the burnt offering. And he he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what what have you done? And Saul said, oh, don't worry about it. When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For when the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince, to take your job over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, and it was only 600 men. Now anybody who spends any time reading through the Old Testament will know exactly what God was up to. When God starts thinning your ranks so that all of your men, all of your army starts disappearing, that's not the time to start panicking. That's the time to start getting excited because God's up to something. Because one of the things that God loves doing is giving big victories with small pools of resources. You remember this guy named Gideon? He had a couple thousand men and God's like, ah, that's too many. Go down to the river and make the guys drink out of the, the, the river and watch how they drink. And uh, I want you to only pick a couple guys who drink water a very specific way. And when it was all said and done, there were only 300 guys to go to war against this other massive tribe with thousands of people. So Saul should have known 
because he grew up as a Jewish kid, he, he knew the stories. He should have looked at what was happening and said, I'll wait 10 days if I need to. Because it really doesn't matter how many guys there are. I don't need a couple thousand guys. I don't even need 300 guys. All I need is one guy. That's really all we need. But Saul's looking at his circumstances and he's not looking at the Lord. And that's Saul's biggest issue. He's insecure because he keeps looking at everything happening around him. He can't stop scrolling on the internet. He can't stop watching the news. He can't stop looking at his bank account. He's looking at everything happening around him and he's saying, things aren't good. And he panics. And he does the same thing that most of us do when we start panicking. We choose the easiest religious thing that we can do in order to try to get God to move on our behalf. We don't go to his word and study what he's up to and the kind of stuff he does so that when we see things are dwindling in my resources, they, they're not very impressive. Well, that's all right. I don't have much strength. I feel pretty weak. No, that's okay. He, he's actually strong in your weakness. It's good that all the stuff is being stripped away because when he shows himself strong, you're gonna know it's him. See, Saul is looking at his circumstances and he's building a kingdom for himself. He's interested in the prestige of being king. He is high off of that war from the Ammonites. He knows that God has given him some, some clout and he's using it to build his own thing. He wants everybody to like him. And now he's put in a situation that was God ordained where people start leaving him and people aren't saying nice things about him again and they're disappearing in the middle of the night and one day we thought we had like, oh, I thought these guys were with me and now like they won't even return my phone calls. If Saul was a student of the word and he was looking at the Lord, he, he, he would not have been afraid at that. He would have waited for Samuel all day but instead he said, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go ahead and just cut out the middleman. I see all of these external things happening to me. One, I've got the Philistines coming and there's a lot of them. Two, Samuel's late. Three, all of my guys are leaving. These are all legitimate reasons for me to go into action, not to wait for the Lord. And so what does he do? He says, I, 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 we just, we need to do the sacrifice thing so we can actually start fighting. So we're gonna cut out the middleman and we're gonna not wait for Samuel the prophet. I'll offer the sacrifice myself and then we can get this whole ball rolling. And, and, and because I'm doing, I'm like, Lord, I'm here. I'm offering the sacrifice. Like surely you'll give us victory. This is on par with at the beginning of the book where the Israelites thought that they could beat the Philistines just by bringing the ark out to the front. There's this religious act that if I just do the thing that looks holy on the outside, I can be disobedient on the inside. I can have clear outlines from scripture. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is how you're supposed to be living, but I'm gonna not, I'm not gonna listen to, I'm gonna ignore that, but I, but I am gonna go to church on Sundays. I'm gonna live with my girlfriend, we're gonna sleep together regularly, but I am gonna show up to church on Sundays. There are clear guidelines for how things are supposed to work, but I'm not gonna follow them. I'm gonna follow these three things because those are easy and outwardly they make me look pious and religious, but these things, 
They demand too much of me. I don't like waiting. I'm a man of action. I like, I like getting things done. There's just one problem with what Saul did. The prophet isn't this figurehead or this character that just exists in a vacuum. He is actually God's mouthpiece in Israel. The prophet is speaking God's words. So when Saul said, I can do this without the prophet, what he's actually saying is, I can do this without God's word. I don't need to hear what God has to say about this situation. I'm just gonna do the thing that looks religious to all my guys that are watching, and we're gonna move on forward with it. On the surface, when you read this story, it seems unbelievably unfair. Why in the, he offered the sacrifice. Samuel was late. The guys are out, like, if I was put in that situation, maybe I would have made the same call. There's this one thing we're forgetting if you're, if you're rationalizing the story that way. This wasn't Saul's throne. This throne belonged to God, and it was given to Saul in order to steward and care for his people. These weren't Saul's people. These were God's people. In the same way that that thing God has entrusted you to steward isn't yours. Job, not yours. Even that business that you started doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. That spouse, not yours, belongs to the Lord. Those kids, they belong to the Lord. And you have been entrusted to raise them up in the right way so that they will then grow up and be entrusted with kids who will be raised in the ways of the Lord. Our value system here in America, is, it's, it's off. We're convinced that this stuff belongs to us and we get offended when things don't go our way. This is why Saul was so upset and why he started panicking because he's seeing these men leaving. My men are leaving. I got bad news for you, Saul. Those aren't your men. They're God's men and he wanted them to leave and he wanted to do it to teach you a lesson. And all the pain and the suffering and the struggle that you're going through right now, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is God's behind it. But the good news is you're going to come out holier on the other side of it. So Saul starts panicking and it starts revealing the things inside of his heart, but exposes inside of uh, us something that's really important to remember. And that this throne, this whole thing that God has given Saul, it wasn't his in the first place and so he can remove it which is painful because what we're about to find out is that this kingdom that God has just removed from Saul is gonna affect Saul's son, Jonathan, who would have made a killer king. Jonathan would have been a fantastic king, but because of his father's decisions, the kingdom was taken from him. Well, that seems unfair until you remember that it wasn't Jonathan's kingdom either. This wasn't Jonathan's throne, it wasn't Saul's throne, this is God's throne, this is God's people. So as we kind of go through the story, verses 16 through 23, 
There's this little section, I don't want to go into it, I don't want to read it because there's a lot to get through, but I just want to summarize 1 Samuel 13, 16 through 23. It's this little section of like, okay, well let me, let me the, the, all, the narrator is helping us understand, like, let me just clarify like how bad it was. It wasn't just that there were a lot of Philistines and there weren't a lot of Israel, Israelites. Let me clarify how bad this actually was. It was so bad that the Philistines were in the Iron Age while the Israelites were still fighting with wooden swords and rocks and stones. In fact, any iron that they had to like, like plow their ground, their rakes, they had to go to the Philistines and pay the Philistines to sharpen their materials. In fact, when they showed up, these 600 guys, none of them have swords. The only people who have iron swords are Saul and his son, Jonathan. That's how bad it was. And so the, 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 the battle starts by the Philistines sending out these raiding parties out from Michmash all to these other regions, three different areas, and the panic has set in. Let's go to verse one in chapter 14. Kyle, will you turn the air conditioners off, please? First Samuel 14, one, it says, one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul said, to the young man who was carrying his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Man, this Jonathan, he's always wanting to make some trouble. I kind of like him. He's not looking to like make trouble trouble. He's, making, he's looking to make like holy trouble. He's looking at these Philistines like, you don't belong here. You're the enemy. I'm tired, I'm tired of the kingdom of darkness coming in and preying on my kids. I'm tired of all this nonsense coming in and trying to shape the worldview of, of, of my family and trying to dictate to me how I'm supposed to raise my kids. I'm, I'm kind of tired of it. Let's go make some trouble in a holy way. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in a pomegranate cave. Well, that's an interesting contrast. So Jonathan is with his friends. He's like, hey, you want to go make some trouble? And his dad is hiding in a cave. Who is he in the cave with? The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, and Shiloh wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone out. Oh, man, look at this contrast. The, the dismantling of Saul's kingdom has already begun. His son is out there about to start trouble with the enemy. He's filled with faith and his dad is faithless, hiding in a cave, having his kingdom ripped from him and his only companions are 600 guys who didn't desert him and the other priest who has previously had the priesthood ripped from him. This is Eli's lineage. A couple chapters ago, the Lord told Eli, your priesthood's coming to an end. So isn't it interesting? Ichabod is probably written over the top of that cave. The Lord has departed everybody hanging out in this cave. Saul's kingdom's ripped away. The priesthood's ripped away. Let's go to verse 14, or go verse four. Because the tragedy of this picture is about to get worse. Because we're about to find out how awesome Jonathan was. We're about to learn how our decisions as fathers affect our kids in big ways, and it's unsettling. 
So here's Jonathan. So we've, we've looked at Jonathan, and it's interesting. I, I told you at the beginning that, that the arrangement preaches things. I want you to look at the arrangement here. We start the story with Jonathan having big success, and then we go to Saul, big failure. And then we have another picture of Jonathan demonstrating big faith, and another picture of Saul hiding in a cave as a failure. And now we've got another picture of Jonathan about to go over and demonstrate big faith in this war, and then we're going to end it with another failure from Saul. The arrangement is speaking something profound. And one of the most profound things it's speaking is that Jonathan didn't seem to live as a byproduct of his home life. Jonathan seems to be a completely different man than his father. When you see the contrast of the lives, you see Jonathan as a young man full of faith and his father filled with fear. And the arrangement is asking us to consider if Jonathan didn't fall back on his father as an excuse for why he didn't walk in faith, what if you stopped using that excuse as well? What if you stopped blaming your life on the way you grew up and took some ownership and started making some trouble with the kingdom of darkness by fixing your eyes on God and not on your circumstances. Verse four, it says, when the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over into the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other. And the name on one was Bozes and the name on the other was Sinah. So he's got his armor bearer and they're climbing up through this mountain, through this rocky crag, and they're trying to get over without being seen over to Michmash. Verse five, the one crag rose on the north front of Michmash and the other on the front side of Geba. Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. <laughs> Man, I want this guy to be my king. And his armorer said, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. The Hebrew idiom there is I am with you as your heart is with you. I'm not going anywhere, man. Wherever you go, I go. And Jonathan said, behold, here's what we're gonna do. Let's cross over to the men, these Philistines, and we're gonna show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come up to you, then we will stand in our place and we will not go up to them. But if we cross over and they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them in our hand and this will be the sign. Our sign on whether the Lord is with us and whether we're gonna have a victory is how they respond to seeing us. Do they wanna pick a fight or do they tell us, just be, be still, we'll come up there to you. If they say, come down here to fight, then the Lord's gonna give us a victory. So both of them, verse 11, showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are starting to come out of their holes where they've been hiding themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us, and we will show you a thing. <laughs> That's the, the Hebrew, or the old Philistine way of, come, on, come, on, come here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you a lesson. Come down here, I'm gonna show you a thing. Maybe we should reintroduce that, I like that. Come over here, I'm gonna show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. 
Isn't it funny, the taunt was the answer to the prayer. Come down here, I'm gonna show you a thing or two. Oh, buddy, you don't know what you got yourself into because what you just said was actually the Lord speaking through you that you're destroyed, man. I'm coming for you. Oh, I'm coming. And somebody's gonna get taught something. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed down uh, upon his hands and his feet. So like, it's such a funny picture. All these Philistines are like watching up there on the mountain. And like, you just give me a second, man. So he's like climbing down on his hands and his feet. And his armor bearer was after him. And, they f- and when he got down there, they went to war and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed after them. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. In the first opening minutes of the battle, Jonathan and his armor bearer took out 20 dudes in about an acre of land. And there's just dead bodies everywhere. 20 to one odds. And Jonathan is just slaying them left and right. And at that point, there was a panic in the camp. Yeah, I bet. I bet there was a panic in the camp. Because God just showed that he doesn't need 600 men or 300 men or 50 men. He only needs one guy filled with faith and letting that faith turn to boldness. There was panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people. The garrison, even the raiders, trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone out from us. When they have counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul and Ahiah, they said, bring, Saul said to Ahiah, bring the ark of God here to me, and the ark of God, uh, because for the ark of God at that time went out with the people. Now, while Saul was still talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So while he's having a conversation with the priest, hey, go get the ark. He's looking over. He's like, I don't know. There's no time for the ark. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Go get the ark. No, don't go get the ark. We've got to go down there. We've got to fight. So then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, the Philistine sword was against his fellow. And when they showed up, so when they showed up, what did they find? 20 dead bodies sitting around Jonathan and all the Philistines were fighting themselves. <laughs> now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines by that time, who had gone up into, the, uh, in, into had gone with them into the camp, they also returned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So now you've got these Hebrews who are hiding out on these caves. Now they're coming back into battle. Oh, we're winning? Okay, we'll show up. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard and the Philistines were fleeing. So they, followed too, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. So the Lord brought a victory, but he brought the victory through the faith of one man. He didn't need 600 guys, he only needed one guy. So the lesson here is that Saul looks at circumstances, but David He's, or uh, Jonathan is looking at the Lord. And this contrast is important for some of the reasons that I stated earlier because Jonathan is Saul's son. But also because before all the people of Israel, you've got an example of what a king could be like, but he doesn't get the throne because of the decisions that are made before him. And it seems so unfair, but it's not their thrones. Neither one of these guys 
are the ones who are responsible for this throne. So you've got Saul making bad decisions and it, it's even more sour because you don't just have a king making bad decisions, you have the potential of a good king who could have made good decisions because you look at Jonathan and you see this guy just filled with faith. And so what the narrator is doing in the arrangement of the story is he's presenting almost like a parable to us. Here's two guys. What character lies within you? Do you have more Saul in you or more Jonathan in you? When the pressure starts mounting, are you the kind of guy to say, that's fine. This looks like a pretty good opportunity for the Lord to show himself strong. I can't wait to see what the Lord does with this nothing. Or are you the kind of guy that says, I, I had better do something. Because if I don't, things are going to fall apart. And you see Saul continuing these religious practices. And you see Jonathan, his son, ignoring these religious practices. All Jonathan cares about is faith in his God. And all Saul cares about is outward religious exercises. Bring the ark. Wait, don't bring the ark. Let's call a fast. That's what happens next. Verse 24, so now they're winning and we find out something else that Saul did in order to rally support and try to get God on his side. All the while his son has already got God working through him. He's ignoring the fact that the Lord is using his son in ways that he's not using him and he's still trying to manipulate the Lord. Verse 24. It says, the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I, have a, and, uh, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. So the guys were already tired from war, and this vow, this fast that Saul called, made his people even weaker. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had heard his father, excuse me, Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put the tip of a spear that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. He was restored, filled with nourishment. And the people said to him, dude, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats this food. And that's why all these people are faint. And Jonathan said, well, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I, taste, I just tasted a little bit of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Our defeat wasn't as great as it could be because my dad issued a foolish fast. So they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Alam. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and ox and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate with them with the, with the blood. And, they told Saul, hey, the people are sinning against the Lord. They're breaking their fast by eating with the blood. 
there's a, uh, a stipulation in the covenant where you, you have to drain the blood out of the animal before you cook it. But they're eating it with the blood in it. They're so hungry. And he said, you've dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here, drain out the blood and then eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating the blood. Isn't that interesting that that's what Saul is concerned with? He's, he cares a great deal about some commandments, but other ones, he is completely fine to disobey. So every one of the people brought his oxen with him that night and they slaughtered them there. So Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. And Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night after everybody's all full and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, well, let's do whatever seems good to you. And the priest said, well, hey, how about we draw near to the Lord first? We didn't do that back at Gilgal. Let's, cons let's, let's ask the Lord what he wants to do. Maybe he wants to do something crazy. Like maybe he just wants us to all like, maybe he wants us to just like sing and just like praise and worship. And like maybe the Philistines will keep killing themselves. Maybe we should ask the Lord what he wants us to do. And Saul's like, all right, it seems like a praying. That seems like a very good idea. Yes, thank you, priest. We should definitely pray. And Saul inquired of the Lord, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But the Lord did not answer him that day. And Saul said, all right, everybody come here, all of you leaders of the people and know and see how this sin has risen today. For the Lord lives who saves Israel. Though it be at Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Now this is what's fascinating about this story. Saul has done another religious exercise because the Lord is not with him. Because God is not with him, he's not assured the victory, so he wants to fall back on all these religious exercises that he thinks will garner him support with the Lord, even though the Lord has already clearly said, I'm, I'm, I'm vanished. Remember what my prophet said back in chapter 12, if you act wickedly, uh, you're gonna be swept away, you and your king, yeah, that's you. You're the king being swept away. Saul's like, well, no, 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 I, I can't, no, I can't hear that. In fact, Samuel actually left Gilgal and went home. And he's left, Saul is left with this priest who, the priesthood has already de also departed from. So all Saul has are these outward religious exercises. Let's call a fast. Well, Saul, that's stupid. Like it's gonna, it's gonna oppress your people. They're not gonna be, have enough strength to fight. It doesn't matter. I've gotta get the Lord's attention. I've gotta do, I have to do something. Well, Saul, don't you know that, that your son, he's doing the thing that you should be doing? Like he's walking by faith and the Lord's giving him victory? No, 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 I'm not listening to that. I'm only strictly sticking to religious exercises because those are the things that I can control and that's what I know. Go get the ark, wait, no, don't get the ark. Let's call a fast. I know, let's pray. And so he calls everyone together and he's gonna pray. Oh, well, great, finally, Saul, you're praying. You're finally asking the Lord what to do. And so he asks, Lord, 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 what do we do? Should we go in? Are you gonna give us victory? And there's no answer. So Saul's first assumption is there's no answer because there must be sin in the camp. 
God's not answering because there's sin. So I'm going to have me and my son stand over here and everybody else in Israel stand over there and we're going to cast lots and we're going to see where the sin lies. Saul is so sure the sin is outside of him that he won't examine the sin in his own heart. He's convinced that the problem is always somebody else. But everybody else knows what's going on. So they're all standing over there and they watch Jonathan eat the honey and they're just like, oh man, okay, whatever you think is best, king. What we're watching here is another parable. The parable is this. A king is offended because somebody has broken his command. But the trouble is that he is the king who broke the king's command. He cares more about his commandments and his way of doing things and what he says goes than what God says about his own life. You ever met a guy like that? Who runs his house like his words are more valuable and important than the Lord's words? So what happens? Verse 41, therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, give Urim. And if this guilt is in the people of Israel, give Thumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. What are the Urim and the Thumim? There were these little stones, one was black, one was white, and they were kept in the, um, the ephod of the priest. And when they were petitioning the Lord for answers to their questions, they would cast these lots. Essentially, they would say, Lord, is it yes or no? If it's yes, give us umim. And so they would pull out, oh, it's a white stone. So yes, the Lord is with us, or he gives us a yes. It's this, it's this way of kind of casting lots. Well, the lots were cast, and turns out the problem wasn't in the people of Israel. It was in Saul's family. And then Saul looked at Jonathan, because he knew, surely it's not. It's not me, I haven't sinned, I haven't done anything. So Saul looked at Jonathan and said, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the dip of my staff and it was in my hand and here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. A man willing to kill his own son because he values his commands over God's commands. And the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place, and the war came to an end. So you've got Saul. valuing his own religious activities and his own commands over the commands of the Lord. And it's a parable of a man whose life has been vacated by the Spirit of God. But here's the, here's the saddest part. When you finish this chapter, you find out nothing specific about Saul. What happens next? He goes home. He goes home, he wins a couple more battles, he has a couple more victories. We're told at the end of the chapter that anytime he sees a guy who, who has any military prowess, he pulls him in close, you're gonna be part of my army. 
alluding back to the warning that Samuel gave when this whole thing started. You want a king? I don't know if you know what you want. Like, once you do this, they're, just gonna, they're gonna start taking your boys and your women and, and they're just gonna bring them into their army and you're never gonna see them again. Saul did that. But you get this sense as the chapter ends that like Saul didn't learn anything from this moment. He was presented with this parable and it went right over his head. Who is the guy who disobeyed my commands? And the Lord is saying, it is you. You're the one who disobeyed my commands. Saul, you're the problem. And you think that all these religious exercises that you do can fix the problem. But here's the real problem. You're walking in disobedience. You care more about your words than my words. And now you're being put in a situation where I have disappeared. I'm gone. I'm leaving you. But the saddest part, all of it, Saul isn't repentant. He's not broken. He's not sad over it. He goes home and he lives a perfectly fine, successful life. But in all that he's gained, in the larger army, the palace he builds, the success he garners, the reputation he has, there's one thing he doesn't have. He does not have the Lord. And so this story is presented in such a way where you've got two guys, one walking by faith and successful, just like the first half of Samuel's warning, if you're obedient, you'll be blessed. And then another guy who is the personification of this other way of just walking this perfectly fine, but godless, wicked, disobedient life. You don't have the Lord. And so the presentation today as we're reading through this is to ask yourself, as I'm, as I'm reading through this, like how much of that Saul is in me? Because I want the Jonathan in me. When I read this story, like, my prayer for, for, for this is that, like, I want Jonathan's faith. I want to stand out like that dude. I want to be the kind of guy who looks at the landscape of the world and is not troubled, is not shaken, is not worried, because he's so filled with faith that there's not a single thing that could happen that would put him on his heels because he knows that the Lord is working in the midst of all of the economy and the wars and the bad news and the technology and things that don't look good. Ooh, everyone's freaking and shaking. Doesn't, Jonathan's not shaking. I want to be like that guy but I'm afraid that if I'm honest with myself, I'm more like Saul than Jonathan. So this is, this is the invitation today, to consider where you fall. Who lives on the inside of you? Is it a person filled with faith? Is that the direction you're heading in? Or is your life, does it look more like Saul? Is everything just fine? Is everything normal? Are you going through the religious exercises and doing all the things that you think are expected of you? The things that you think you can do to move around in order to get God's attention or get him to look your way or bless you or do things that you want him to do all because you're so busy building your own kingdom you don't care what blueprints he has for his kingdom? You like sitting on the throne because it's comfortable and you got your rear end in there and the seat's all warm and you like sitting on the throne and telling other people what to do and you like when people follow your commands, you like being in charge. Here's the warning for those of us living like that. You're gonna end up in the same cave that Saul ended up in. 
the cave over the top that reads Ichabod. And your only friends are going to be people that the Lord has also departed from. This is what comes to religious people. Folks that think, I don't need to read that. I've already read it. Folks that say, all I really need to do is be kind, show up to church, maybe sing a song or two, and then we break and I get to go home and live however I want. And then we'll come back and we'll do it next week. But as long as I'm tossing a coin over towards the Lord, I'm tipping my hat, and I acknowledge his supremacy over all things except the things that I don't want him touching. This is what's heading your way. The command from Samuel was clear. If you walk in obedience, blessed. Now blessed may not be your definition of blessed. Blessed may be in your mind, you're like blessed is okay, blessed is this, this, and this. And God's like, <laughs> funny, funny story, blessed is not that, it isn't that, and it isn't that. But you will be blessed by his definition. But Here's the guarantee. If you don't walk in the way that Jonathan walked, filled with faith, taking steps of faith and saying, man, there's no telling what the Lord is gonna do, so I'm just gonna walk in this direction and we'll just see what he gets up to. And I'm gonna let him use me. The opposite of that is uh, Jonathan's father, Saul, and he lived a life that was just on the exterior, perfectly fine, looked like he came to church every week, everything seemed okay, he was like a normal guy, but never read his Bible. If he did, it was only in public. If he ever prayed, it was only in front of other people. He was only interested in religious exercises when it garnered support for people seeing him as holy, but on the inside, he was empty and dead. I don't want you to read these chapters and fall into the same trap that Saul fell into. You don't have a kingdom like Saul does, but you have been given responsibility over things, and I want you to be a good steward of those things, but my, my greatest fear as your pastor is that you will spend the next 10 years sitting in the same seat in this church, thinking the same thoughts about yourself, feeling that the world revolves around you, convinced that everybody else is the problem, but never really considering. When being presented with parable after parable after parable, that my man, you are the problem. You're the problem. It isn't your wife. It isn't your kids. It isn't your job. It's you, your heart is broken. You're given to addictions. You love more things than you love God. You are fixed on circumstances and you want this world and your way and not his way. I fear for you because I know where that heads. It heads to a lonely place in a cave without the Lord. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.